Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wonked, a policy pod. My name is Ricky Soto. I am your host today, joined by my two other co-hosts, Rachel. Do you want to introduce yourself? Just say hi, Rachel. Yeah, hey, guys. I'm Rachel, and I'm from Ohio. Oh, yeah. I'm from San Diego, California. And then Noah Zunker. Uh, Noah, do you want to say hi? Hi, y'all. I'm Noah Zunker. I'm from Austin, Texas. Beautiful. Beautiful. So today we're going to be talking about um, gun control. It's something that's uh, particularly salient in the media right now because of uh, both the shootings in uh, the Parkland School District as well as... Um, you know, pri- prior mass shootings uh, that have really uh, shocked the American consciousness. But we really want to provide a-, a policy outline for for approaching the Second Amendment and how we can how we can understand uh, the armed history of America and also the armed uh, uh, policies the policies around armed uh, individuals in the United States and how that relates to gun violence, suicide. Um, mass shootings, all these other issues that really do arise out of this one overarching um, umbrella. So a little outline for today's podcast. First, we're going to start off with a, a legal history of the Second Amendment, going into the the introduction of the Second Amendment into the Constitution, why it's there, then following the court history, um, and as well as a statutory history of the Second Amendment. Then we're going to transition to a an interview with Professor Carolyn Light, and uh, that'll center around the selective self-defense and the use of the law, not even the law, but American culture, American white culture, took a different avenue of disenfranchising uh, black Americans, uh, people of color, uh, women, by literally rolling back individual uh, carry rights. But we'll go over that with Professor Carolyn Light. And then finally, we'll take a policy approach and a modern day look at uh, gun control and also the different facets of uh, carrying guns in the United States. So what I think we should get into first is the legal history behind the Second Amendment, both its, pu- you know, like putting it into the Constitution literally, and then um, also the court history behind it, because I think this will really highlight some aspects of the Second Amendment that many people don't know. Noah, do you want to read the Second Amendment for us with the yeah. commas, please? So so good for, for context, the actual Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia, mm-hmm. comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Beautiful. I and I, I asked him to read the commas and also, because I mean, like, I think too often liberals and progressives approach this from a very, like, I don't know, I always hear like, oh, like, did they have assault rifles back then? And do you guys hear that? I hear yeah. this. That's uh, all the time. It's yeah. all over Twitter. Do you guys, they didn't have assault, like, an arm was a, a musket and then, like, that kind of stuff. Which, I mean, it's a fair point, to be honest. But but I think we should even, like, come to conservative turf and talk about it from, like, a, an originalist perspective. Um, not Not a textualist, but an originalist perspective. And when we look at people, like the use of people versus persons in the Constitution, people, particularly within the first ten amendments, always denotes um, like a state right, right? Or like a collective right versus an individual right because they use persons for that. Um, but, uh, Rachel, do you want to talk about like why they needed a second amendment in the first place? And then also, yeah, um, yeah I guess we'll just start there. Yeah. So, um, One of the big reasons why the Second Amendment was put into the Constitution or the Bill of Rights is um, that southern states were nervous about slave rebellions. And 
Congress would have to vote to send a militia into a southern state to yeah. kind of put down the slave rebellion. And um, southern states were nervous that um, Congress wouldn't actually vote in favor of sending in a militia. Mm-hmm. So states needed to kind of levy their own army of sorts um, in order to put down um, any sort of slave rebellion. Um, yeah. So, And there were some court cases, some early court cases, I think, that you wanted to talk about, Ricky? Yeah. Um, I, I think we should first just touch on um, none of these state because this predates uh, U.S. v. Crookshank, which Rachel will get into, but um, is mentioned within uh, D.C. v. Heller, which we will also get into. Um, but none of these states like this first one that's kind of like a, a big one chronologically. And it's a state court case uh, in the state of Georgia, I believe, where a man um, wanted to protect his own individual right to carry, uh, I believe it was a pistol or something like that, around, I can't remember if it was like a state or a locality, said, no, 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 you can't do this. And in Georgia at the time, and I believe still now, their state constitution, when ratified by uh, Congress, didn't have a specific provision for individual right to bear arms. And basically the state, uh, I believe it was the Supreme Court of Georgia, said uh, the Second Amendment protects this, um, which is very weird. Um, or like, I think, it, I can't remember if they, that was a specific ruling that they used. It was certainly used in D.C. v. Heller to, per, to promote this idea of an individual right. But I think what's also interesting is incorporation hadn't happened, just to provide context. Incorporation is the idea that the U.S. federal constitution applies to state laws and state uh, constitutions as well. Um, and this really came about with the 14th uh, Amendment. This was the beginning of incorporation, and you start to see this trickle down throughout the late 1800s and the 1900s into court cases. And different things were incorporated, different amendments were specifically incorporated at different times. But, Rachel, do you want to talk about U.S. v. Crookshank? Because I think this is really important yes. um, both in what it specifically literally mm. says, and then also for, for context. Yeah. Um, overall, U.S. v. Crookshank was just objectively terrible. But yeah. um, there was this one specific thing to come out of uh, U.S. v. Kirkshank, and I'll read the actual quote. Um, so it says, The right specified is that of bearing arms for lawful purposes. This is not a right guaranteed by the Constitution, neither is it in any, any manner dependent upon that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment declares that it shall not be infringed, but this, as has been seen, means no more than it shall not be infringed by Congress. This is one of the amendments that has no other effect than to restrict the national government. So essentially what this is saying is that states can regulate guns if they so choose. Um, the Second Amendment is only restricting the national government. And I think, you know, if you're going to be consistent, especially for judges, this is a really important precedent that's set. And um, yeah. it's probably the only good thing to come out of this court yeah, case. Yeah, this is a terrible terrible court case and if we'll talk about it with professor light but basically she talks about why this court case came about and it also sheds an important like early historical example of like why or the use of the law to suppress um to suppress you know uh, ra- uh, racial minorities and particularly black americans but um quickly we'll run through some other court cases or like laws that led up to uh, D.C. v. Heller, which is the current law now. So we have the National Guard Act of 1902. This was um, kind of seen by many court, uh, you know, following court cases as the enshrinement in the federal statutory law of the Second Amendment. Then we had uh, 
Ronald Reagan, or yeah, the like the uh, National Firearms Act of I believe it was 1934 and 1936, which um, put some restrictions on carrying firearms on a national level. Supported by the NRA, by the way. Um, this then you had the Mulford Act uh, in 1967, um, and we 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 see a slew of gun control laws get put into place, really, um, up until like Reagan and stuff. So. That leads us kind of to today where we have DC v. Heller, which is the prevailing legal theory, which guarantees the individual right to bear arms. And this is a historic court case in the sense that it really overturned hundreds of years of precedent, which said otherwise. And then I think beyond this, I can't remember if it was Justice Warren but or if it was Justice Berger, but uh, they have a famous quote, which is, like this is a fraud upon the American public. <laughs> this idea, the uh, the idea that um, an individual right is somehow protected in the Constitution. This was, he's since passed, but this is the uh, the idea that you know, like as long as the NRA has been pushing this really since the '80s as a Republican institution, um, this has really not been the actual legal theory that that is set in stone. But no, do you want to talk about? We had you read a a white paper on right to carry laws, um, their effects on those states, and then also um, just just speak to more like what has happened since DC v. Heller. What's the contemporary uh, state of right to carry laws? Yeah, so DC Heller was DC v. Heller was a um, of course, as you said, that established the right to like individually carry. This is a new interpretation of. The Second Amendment, which was less focused on the well-regulated militia and more focused on the right of the people to bear arms, like personally bear arms. This would be you being able to carry, being able to have a gun in your own home and be it personally yours and having restrictions on that be illegal, right? Since then, we've had expansions of that. It's dependent on the state, but there's been a general expansion of those rights so that it's no longer just in a home that you can have a, a firearm, but you can also have uh, a concealed carry, and in some states you can have open carry, like in Texas, where you can have the open carry of a firearm um, all the way up to like an AR-15. In Texas, uh, there's that recent story that like we can carry swords now in Texas because <laughs> we've, ex- we've expanded the right to bear arms so far that like we need swords, Yeah. Um, which is funny, but it's Texas, so like that yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, and so the current state of affairs is, depending on what state you are, the interpretation of the law is different, but the, the understanding is that the Second Amendment applies to you personally being able to carry a firearm with certain restrictions that are in a kind of gray area of where those restrictions lay, mm-hmm. but you can carry your own personal firearm. This is a result of the radicalization of the NRA post-1980s yeah. into the 1990s where the the real gun rights activists took over the NRA. It used to be a conservation organization that was interested in, like, teaching how to shoot a gun to boy scouts like it was it was a very very low-key yeah organization and then the radicalization of the NRA happened and now we have the right to possess firearms individually and that's where our current state of affairs rachel do you want to talk about because i mean there's been some there's this what it's uh more guns less crime now yeah which i mean the logical extension of this is an infinite amount of guns means zero (laughs) crime but the (laughs) besides like the ridiculousness of like this claim, at least from many liberals' perspectives, mm-hmm. on its face. Do you want to talk about like the empirical research behind, yeah, um, behind this push to say this is like empirically true, and then like 
how it kind of just falls apart on itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there was this article that came out in 1997 and it was, um, it was written by this guy named John Lott and a guy named David Mustard. And they kind of coined the term more guns, less crime. And basically claiming that by adopting right to carry laws, um, states saw a reduction in crime. So um, they ended up finding that the overall violent crime rate fell by 4 to 7% and poverty crime rates increasing 2 to 9%. And they reached the conclusion that Violent crime is replaced by property crime because there's a smaller chance of getting shot when you're committing a property mm -hmm. crime. Yeah. Um, so the more guns, less crime term was picked up by politicians and the NRA. And um, it became such a big deal that the National Research Council decided to put together um, you know, a bunch of experts in criminology, stats, and economics to kind of look into their article. Yeah. And they concluded that the results of this um, article was, were imprecise and they're also highly sensitive to model changes. So mm -hmm. the issues with this article is, first of all, they use data from 1977 to 1992 and yeah. like conveniently miss this huge drop in crime that happens later in the 90s. Yeah. Um, they also use country, uh, county level data, mm -hmm. which is not reliable at all. Um, because the FBI can't enforce the accuracy of the data. Yeah. Um, and then they had two models that showed conflicting results and just kind of chose to ignore the model that didn't support their conclusion um, and a ton of other issues. So, But the biggest issue with this is that there's no way to empirically and definitively say that right-to-carry laws have X effect because... In order to do that, you'd have to randomly assign uh, different states uh, to either have right-to-carry laws or to not have right-to-carry laws um, in order to account for the differences in crime and such across states, and you can't do that. So there's no way to actually prove that right-to-carry laws either increase or decrease the rates of crime. Mm -hmm. um, the... Um, article that I read actually that was talking about the issues with um, the John Lott and David Muster article redid um, kind of the research and they found that there is some statistically significant evidence that uh, right to carry laws actually increase the rate of gun related um, aggravated assault. Mm -hmm. But um, again, even that is kind of unreliable. Yeah. And I think if you guys want another like additional reading, um, there's also a, uh, an interesting article from, I believe it's a Stanford Law Review, if I'm correct, but um, by Ian Aries. I, I hope mm -hmm. I have that right. And then uh, John J. Donahue III. Um, it's called Shooting Down the More Guns, Less Crime Hypothesis. Um, this was from 2003. But a lot of, a lot of this research is really up to date. Um, so we'll, we'll link... Uh, some of the articles below, which you can read on this in, in the description. But I think now that we've kind of prefaced this legal history, we're going to move right now into our interview with Professor Carolyn Light. Um, and she's here to offer a really interesting perspective on gun control and the legal history of gun control and then also what is going on with gun control now. But from 
the point of view of of looking at through the lens of gender, uh, of sexuality, of of race, which is incredibly salient, obviously, in the United States, um, and, and really uh, expound upon that. But without further ado, we're going to go into the interview with Professor Carolyn. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, our expert guest this week is Professor Carolyn Light. Professor Light is a senior lecturer of studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard, as well as the director of undergraduate studies of women, gender, and sexuality here. She also holds a PhD in the history of women and gender studies uh, from the University of Kentucky, as well as an AB in history from Duke University. Her research explores the ways in which gender uh, race and region have shaped the collective mismemory and archi- or and archival silence. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Professor Light about her book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Self-Defense. Without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Professor. Ricky, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming. Um, so we briefly in the previous segment talked about... Um, the legal history behind the Second Amendment and the reasons uh, why it was put in there. But uh, an important term to this discussion is uh, selective self-defense. And could, could you speak to that a little bit? What is selective self-defense, maybe in a contemporary context, but also a historical context, and just define it for the audience? So selective self-defense, I, I like to frame it that way because in our culture, whether you own firearms or not, Uh, We tend in the United States to embrace a logic of a right to self-defense that we presume to be universal. So as I've been doing research on self-defense and the roots of uh, self-defense in United States law dating back to English common law, I like to say selective self-defense because, in effect, the right to self-defense is not universal. In Mm -hmm. fact, it's limited to, I would say, a minority of citizens. So uh, one of the most obvious examples would be Philando Castile, um, who uh, an African-American man, a law-abiding citizen who Mm -hmm. had a firearm and a license and as most Americans know, was shot and killed by police, and he really didn't do anything wrong. So we can see how uh, the right to defend oneself or the right to carry a weapon for self-defense or the Second Amendment right is not universally applied. I would also urge people to consider the extent to which it's not just racially exclusionary, Mm -hmm. um, but rather exclusions of self-defense are also gendered. So for instance, if you think about intimate partner violence. Um, Women's greatest statistical threat are their own exes and partners and spouses. And when a woman stands her ground against or defends herself against her intimate partner who is violent towards her, usually the outcome is that she ends up serving time in prison. So you can see this in many different cases. I think maybe one of the most um, visible cases recently is Marissa Alexander, who fired a warning shot in her home as her estranged husband was threatening her. She ended up getting um, over 20 years of a sentence, of which she served three years So I want to think about self-defense as something that is actually a selective right that Mm -hmm. the majority of citizens don't really have full access to. Yeah. And on the Philando Castile case, since I'm more familiar with it, and we'll get into the NRA later, but it's just just really, it's interesting that like the NRA 
released a tentative statement after public like outrage and then never followed up on it. So we'll, we'll get into the, like the cultural roots and, um, the, the white cultural roots of the NRA later. But, um, let's, let's talk about the legal history of the Second Amendment and its relation to selective self-defense. Mm-hmm. So we covered in the previous section the uh, Constitution and the addition of the Second Amendment in, uh, in the convention in Philadelphia. But could you speak to that process by which specifically the African Americans in the United States, yeah. the law has been used not so much as like, like it's not a legalistic approach, right? It, it's really just a selective approach that reinforces the cultural anxiety of the time. And speak mm-hmm. to how that has developed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's a huge history. So um, really, uh, one way to think about the Second Amendment is to think about historical context. Since mm-hmm. I'm trained, I'm trained as a cultural historian. So yeah. when I'm looking at these legal texts, I'm looking at them for traces of. The way that people at the time would have understood them, would have interpreted them. Um, So how did legal practitioners use these laws and interpret these laws? So think about the context in which our Constitution took shape. Who were the people at the time that had access to the rights and privileges and protections of full citizenship? So, again, we can think about this intersectionally, considering Mm -hmm. multiple vectors of power um, and identity politics. And, for instance, you mentioned enslaved people. So people considered chattel did not have access to uh, the full protection of the law, really. Um, similarly, uh, Native peoples in the United States did not have access to the Second Amendment. They they really didn't have the right to protect their homes uh, from intruders. Um, similarly, in a similar vein, uh, most women didn't fully have access to this privilege of Second Amendment right to bear arms, Mm -hmm. um, to protect property, because uh, with few exceptions, women couldn't really own their own property. Mostly their husbands owned whatever property they had. So there were actually very few people who could fully participate in um, Second Amendment rights Mm -hmm. uh, at the time that the Second Amendment, you know, came into, uh, you know, became part of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people uh, claim to interpret it as it it was originally instantiated. Um, But when they do that, they fail to see the way in which initially it was intended to privilege just a small percentage yeah. of the population with the right to bear arms. What's what's really interesting that I've found is if you go back and, you know, because the right has this conception of originalism, but they don't seem to go and do the homework and actually go read what they were debating at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention. And when you go back and read it, yeah. you ba- it's basically an argument about, well, if the federal government doesn't want to raise an army to put down a slave rebellion, mm-hmm. the state needs that right to assert its own its own right to have slaves and also protect uh, white Americans and their property. Exactly. So remember this a lot of this comes down to it sounds simplistic but yeah. a lot of this comes down to who has property mm-hmm. and and how are they going to be able to protect their property. So I think you hit the nail right on the head there. Yeah. And I I think because your book specifically touches on this case but USV Crookshank um, yes. So we talked about we talked yes. about the right to uh, or specifically how it says the right to bear arms is not a right granted by the Constitution. Yeah. In the case. And, you know, this yeah. is 
this is um this is from the eighteen uh, seventies. But could you speak to the the context behind that? Because we didn't cover that, and it's it's a really interesting case, right? Yeah, I'm fascinated with the Crookshank case. Um, as I've told you before, so the case is in eighteen seventy five. What sparked this Supreme Court case was something called the Colfax Massacre. So this was on Easter morning of eighteen seventy three in Colfax, Louisiana. Essentially, what had happened was in the wake of the Civil War, in the wake of the passage of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, which granted uh, the right to the vote Mm -hmm. to all men, regardless of race or previous condition of servitude. So these newly enfranchised African-American men um, and their allies in Mm -hmm. the Republican Party, the Party of Lincoln, um, had uh, had participated in an election where many African Americans had been elected, and um, because the uh, a very powerful minority of white Democrats in the state did not want to allow these people to serve as elected officials, there was a violent backlash in which armed white men. Um, stormed into uh, the the state house mm-hmm. and um, essentially killed everyone there. They took many people captive and then killed the captives. All told, we don't really know for sure. This is something uh, where where precise numbers are lost to the historical mm-hmm. record. But um, anywhere between a hundred to a hundred and fifty. African-Americans were killed on that day um, and three white people um, were Mm -hmm. killed. So the case uh, that made its way to the Supreme Court, Cruikshank, um, was based on an effort to sue the whites responsible for the raid Mm -hmm. uh, through the Enforcement Act, which is also known as the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1870. Cruikshank, the decision of Cruikshank, nullified that as an unconstitutional um, overstepping of the federal government. So essentially saying that the government isn't allowed to uh, necessarily control or uh, sanction the state um, when individuals are trying to curtail someone's right to bear arms or right to freedom of assembly. So this is the First and Second Amendment that were uh, under consideration in this case. So it's one of the I I think it's one like up there with Dred Scott as being one of the worst Supreme Court uh, decisions in history. Yeah. Um, But what it shows us today is how the Second Amendment was up for interpretation, because like you said, uh, in in the in the uh, majority opinion of Cruikshank, it was determined that the Second Amendment did not provide the right for individuals to bear arms. Yeah. And yet here we are today, you know, yeah. here we are post uh, Heller 2008 yeah. with supposedly this understanding of the Second Amendment that does give individuals the right to own and bear arms for self-defense. Yeah, I think that's and what's also interesting is while we're used to this polarized court, it was like an 8-1 decision, I think. And, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. That yeah. people were 
in favor of this. Yes, this you know? was like consensus, basically. Completely. Um, great point. Yeah, but it's it's a fascinating case to read. It's very long. It's very complicated. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the tortured logic by which the court could decide that the First and Second Amendment, that they really had no right yeah. to enforce these. Yeah. And then just to moder- the modern day context, could you speak to like the duty to retreat and then oh, that, sure. that ev- like today we think of stand your ground as like it's almost the status quo now. I mean, it's been pushed like it's been pushed into our heads that well, not every state is stand your ground laws. Like, right. There's I'd say a huge swath of the country that believes this is this should be the case that you have right. a right to the to defend yourself if you f- feel threatened no matter where you are. But what was the duty to, to retreat and like what was that yeah. that history? Yeah, thanks for asking that because I think a lot of people today, because our dominant culture seems to be so uh, on the side of everybody does have a right to defend themselves if they're threatened wherever they may be yeah. because that's such a big part of our culture, popular culture, yeah. et cetera. We forget that uh, this duty to retreat was enshrined in – English common law that would eventually be the basis for Mm -hmm. United States law that uh, ordinarily holds human life at a premium, Mm -hmm. essentially that if you feel threatened, your first response should not be to try to kill the person who you think is threatening you, but actually try to get away to find some way to avoid a lethal confrontation. This was at the heart of English common law. The one exception to it is the Castle Doctrine, and that uh, that came about in early 1600s in England. Um, so the Castle Doctrine essentially says that if somebody threatens you in your home, you don't have a duty to retreat. You actually, because the home is supposed to be your safe haven, yeah. you are, at least in theory, allowed to fight back without retreating. You shouldn't have to retreat in your castle. What's happened today, essentially is through staying your ground, which is now in over half the states. Yeah. Uh, essentially, the castle follows you out into public <laughs> yeah. space. But as I said before, with this selectivity of self-defense, yes. it's not equal for everyone. Yeah. A person who uh, is non-white, for instance, a person who is gender non-conforming, mm-hmm. um, um, a person who could be construed as a threat, and this is all very complicated and performative, is less likely to be able to invoke that protective logic of stay on your ground. So yep. that's why I call it selective self-defense. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think from that like broader context, we can kind of move on to like the big case study of what well, I think it's a case study of of culture, gun culture in the United States, which is the NRA, because you, it starts to give people some background. It starts mm-hmm. as a marksmanship society, or a society, because basically, what happened was, I believe it was for like every, I don't want to say, I don't over exaggerate, but like, it was like ten thousand or a hundred thousand like rounds fired in the Civil War. There was like one Confederate killed. So really? like it was, it, it was some crazy number that like. Uh-huh. Terrible mark. I mean, part of this had to do with the rifles right at the time. Right. Um, the but, technology. Yeah. But people didn't really have training. Exactly. And they didn't know how to use their weapons that they did have. So, exactly. yeah. So it started off as like this like higher upper class, like professional society. 
Um, if you can go back to, I believe it was the 1920s or the 1930s. I think it was the 1930s because the NRA was lobbying for the National Firearms Act yep. of 1934. Yep. And the president of the NRA said, you know, I don't, I don't believe people should be brandishing their weapons out in public. This is something that's, you know, I believe this is a, he was an Olympic champion of marksmanship and he said, you know, this isn't something we should have in our society. And then you kind of saw this culmination in the 1960s um, with the Mulford Act in California, uh-huh. which goes directly to, ra- uh, uh, you know, this racialization of selective self-defense in the sense that the Mulford Act was Ronald Reagan and the NRA's response to the Black Panther Party yep. arming themselves. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. It w- which is, I mean, that's a whole... Like, and the NRA was perfectly in favor. And, yeah. like, and, and then the, the other funny, interesting irony to this is that Ronald Reagan was the first president elected with explicit support of yeah. the NRA. No. So he becomes this like gun rights kind of president later on down the road, yes. even though he is the originator of a bill to curtail open carry and loaded gun carry yes. in California because it was mm-hmm. Black Panther Party members policing the police, as they called it. Yep. So it's definitely a racialized kind of gesture. Yes. And then post that, you see Well, I think it's also important to understand that like this is around the like the time of the civil rights movement and then you're yep. getting this cultural anxiety that's that's kicking up and you know you have Nixon uh and then and then obviously uh Reagan but I think it's really important to look at this Gallup poll mm-hmm. which is not mm-hmm. I think not referenced enough which is in 1959 so Gallup is if you guys um are familiar with it it's it's a really old polling organization. It's basically the old, oldest mm-hmm. professional polling organization in the United States. But in 1959, they asked the question, do you think that, uh, do you think there should or should not be a law that would ban possession of handguns except by the police or other author- authorized persons, persons? And back then they used the word pistols. But back in 1959, 60% of Americans thought that there should be and 36 percent of Americans thought you you shouldn't have a, uh, a law that would ban uh, the possession of these of pistols which is interesting because the percentage the gun ownership like rate was I believe 49 percent yeah whereas today it's 41 percent according to, to Gallup at least and then today only 22 percent of Americans um, believe that that handguns uh, should be banned so it it speaks to this this not only the change in the culture and the change of the, the white perception Yep. of self-defense but um how the nra has really really pushed that because you you saw them post the the gun control act of 1968 really in the 1970s start to become this grassroots they reformed they there was a coup within yep. the within the nra yeah yeah and in the 1970s. Yep. it's yep. really interesting if you just go look back like look up coup nra <laughs> 1970s on google and you will find like they were, they, these people planned it out. They're, they had, it was really interesting, but so that they had, they had a coup. They changed the, like the bylaws changed the focus of the NRA and mm-hmm. it really became this gun rights advocacy group that, as you said, endorsed Ronald Reagan as really, that was their first, like, that was their first that president. Was yeah. That was yep. their first push in the yep. national politics. And since then you've had, Wayne LaPierre since the 1990s dominate the organization, but um, it, and don't forget Marion Hammer. Yes, can you speak she, to that a little bit? So Marion Hammer is a little bit more behind the scenes these days, but I would argue 
And there have been there's there's recently a wonderful article by Mike Spees, mm-hmm. um, um, I believe in the New Yorker. Might double check on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it's a wonderful article about the incredibly powerful influence of Marianne Hammer in promoting policy, mm-hmm. in uh, promoting laws that effectively spread the influence of gun and civilian carry in the United States. Mm -hmm. So she is the originator of stand your ground laws. She's really the one who's responsible for convincing Florida legislatures to consider stand your ground, to twist the necessary arms. Um, Hammer is uh, incredibly influential when there's a policy on the docket in a state that is controlled by people who uh, have been influenced by the NRA. Mm-hmm. She knows exactly how to sway decisions mm-hmm. to make sure that, that whatever decisions are being made are favorable to NRA policy around, I would say, gun rights, absolutist kind of yeah. uh, paradigms. So um, I would never underestimate her. She's this very tiny elderly woman um, who's been working with the NRA since that shift that you talked about in the 1970s. Um, And she is really a master of spinning the proper narrative Mm -hmm. around self-defense. She tells the story of her own encounter. I don't know when years ago, maybe in the eighties where she says she was in a dark parking lot being pursued by a carload full of young men where she felt threatened, where they were yelling things at her and she was terrified that she could be attacked, killed, raped, whatever. Instead of running away, she pulled her pistol out of her purse and stood up to them and the car went peeling away, <laughs> yeah. leaving her, you know, the captain of her destiny. So she would tell this story over and over again to, to I guess, to convince these legislators that uh, self-defense was so urgently necessary, especially for women who were threatened by dangerous strangers yeah. lurking in dark spaces. So again, back to this narrative of stranger danger mm-hmm. rather than statistically the people most likely to threaten women are people they know. Yeah. So that's part of the NRA that I think we sometimes forget is the the, the people working behind the scenes making yeah. policy. You're seeing this, this, I mean, I guess you've always had this push, but um, and they, I, w- I don't think they would call it feminist because it seems like the right, the cr- you know, they, they hate that like, term. Yeah. They don't like that word, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, but there definitely is this, like you said, this this idea that, you know, we, we should arm, like women should be hunting, they should be armed, and this is a, this is a, this is a women's issue. This is yep. something that, you know, they should be able to feel, the reason they can feel safe in like Texas or, or in open carry states because they have their pistol in their purse and that yep. they're the captain of their own destiny, right? Yep. But could you, like, like, so you alluded to earlier the the cases of where women specifically will stand up to their domestic partners yep. who are either abusive or violent or threatening them and will exercise their supposed right to, to self-defense and then it, it doesn't play out. It doesn't play out like... It should be, ideally. Yeah, yeah. So there's the ideal that the NRA would have us believe that if you have a gun with you, you're going to be more safe. Yeah. And that is that narrative is explicitly gendered 
starting especially in the late 70s, where the NRA um, and gun manufacturers start actively actively trying to sell guns to women mm-hmm. as a necessary part of their self-defense. And so part of the rhetoric of this is convincing women that they're in danger yep. by stranger rape in particular. And I want to attend to the implicit metalinguistic use of race when we think about stranger danger and rape. And the way in which this is specifically about protecting white women from rape by black men. And that this has everything to do with this long history of racialized and gendered criminalization of African-American men, of which lynching is one of the legacies. So throughout my book, I kept seeing how traces of the past keep resurfacing today. It's just in less explicit language. So when you look at the NRA's website and you see um, Dana Loesch or whoever else talking about how important it is for women to carry weapons, um, there's an urgent appeal to women's vulnerability. But really, they're explicitly talking about white women's vulnerability to dark strangers lurking in bushes rather than women who are threatened by their own husbands and boyfriends. Yeah. Um, and on that vein, and this, this is where I'm, I'm, I think the manufacturers, the NRA and the gun rights um, lobby in particular is trying to seize on larger cultural fears. Yeah. Um, like for instance, campus sexual assault, which mm-hmm. continues to be the stubborn problem on all college campuses. Right. Yeah. Um, latching on to that, uh, the gun rights lobby sees an opportunity to spread the influence of armed citizenship through campus carry. So now there are, I believe, 12 or 13 states that have some version of um, laws that say that publicly funded institutions need to allow licensed uh, gun owners to carry their guns. Yeah. And they do this arguing that this is going to help young women in college protect themselves from sexual assault, as if every woman is going to be carrying her pistol into keg parties, Um, you know, and and again, statistically speaking, the people raping women in college are men they know. Yeah. So how is the law going to treat those cases when and if? a young woman shoots and kills her ex-boyfriend or a guy she's been on a date with when she is being raped, how is she going to prove this in a court of law when the law doesn't perceive women as reasonably afraid? Um, If the laws around self-defense are based on this notion of what is reasonable fear, how do you convince your judge and your jury that you're reasonably afraid of a guy you went out with or a guy you've dated for years. Yeah. This is just an example of how that happens. Yeah. The other thing I'm working on now um, is looking at all the cases where women have killed ex-boyfriends, husbands, whatever, who have a long track record of abuse. Like, mm-hmm. in other words, there's plenty of evidence. Yeah. And yet... For whatever reason, the courts decide that these women 
were not acting in self-defense. And this is even in stand-your-ground states where yeah. on the surface of the law, it looks like you could invoke stand-your-ground because, oh, my angry husband was attacking me and I shot him and killed him or, or whatever. On the surface, it looks like the law could be used in that way. But in practice, we see many women end up behind bars because, again, this idea of the castle doctrine and of self-defense more generally is gendered, is racialized, is classed in ways that concentrate power into the hands of socially dominant actors yeah. and away from non-dominant actors. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Professor Light. That's like so much, so much awesomeness just packed into this interview. So thank you so much for coming. Um, thank remember, you. guys, to check out her book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair, with lethal self-defense. Um, it's got a lot of great context if you're interested in this, this particular issue, the, the intersection of, uh, gender, race, sexuality, and, uh, self-defense in the United States. Uh, thank you so much, Professor. Thank you, Ricky. Yeah. My pleasure. Hey everybody, welcome back to Wonked. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our interview with Professor Carolyn Light. Now we're going to talk about the contemporary policies surrounding gun control and uh, gun-related crime, as well as accidents and suicides, and then um, international comparisons of like uh, of gun control systems, uh, you know, across the world. No, I know you had the breakdown. What's which year are these CDC numbers from? Yeah, and so the. The breakdown that we have for like the actual firearm deaths in the United States comes from 2015. This is CDC CDC numbers. Um, this is the actual breakdown. There were in 2015 there were 36,252 deaths uh, related to firearms. Of those, 489 of them were unintentional. 22,018 were suicides. 12,979 were homicides. And 484 were legal intervention, and the last 282 were undetermined. So that'd be just a discharge, and you don't know what the intention behind that was. And legal intervention includes... Would be police shootings. Stand your ground laws, right? I, I think don't know about that. That would be... Like things point. that... Okay. But yeah, stand your ground laws. Yeah. That wouldn't... Anyways, yeah. No, yeah, I think... And I, and I think that kind of leads us into, like, the natural division of gun issues, because I think there is a natural division... Mm -hmm. Um, particularly in the United States, I think you have what three main issues, which is the first being suicides and accidents, which we'll, we'll, we'll touch on also. But because um, there's some interesting research on gun control as it relates to suicide um, rates in countries. Um, and then I think within like gun related crime or gun related crime, you have the mass shooting aspect of it, um, particularly with semi-automatic weapons. But mass shooting aspect and then you have the individual murder aspect right this it kind of is characterized by like the urban violence and and drug violence and gang violence the uh and, and particularly pistols right mm -hmm. they could be semi-automatic pistols but pistols um or or handguns uh rather than usually rather than an assault weapon or uh i know that's loosely defined or like a rifle so the the, the way that i see gun violence in the united states is you have those three main divisions, right? You have unintentional or suicide-related deaths, right? Mm -hmm. These are ones that, like, policy can't really... It's hard like, to do direct policy. It's hard to have yeah. to direct policy to those, right? Like, and then the other two forms would be homicides. One of them would be handgun-related homicides, and then the others would be 
everything else. So this is shotguns, this is assault rifles, this is rifles, semi-automatic or non-semi-automatic rifles. Yeah, yeah. Um, the point of like having this division is because it's important. As Democrats say, like we make these kind of distinctions. We could just scream to the roofs roofs that we want gun control forever, but that that's a very loose term with loose indications of what we're actually trying to accomplish. Yeah. And I think those divisions make it a lot easier to understand, right? Yeah. Of like what we're after, right? Well, I, I think one of the things that we can talk about right now that kind of relates, can maybe even relate to everything, but certainly relates to gun-related crime is um is talking about, uh, I mean, what's the term for the smart weapons, right? Like yeah. the There's been a resistance within, you know, from the NRA and from you know, just gun manufacturers in general to smart to smart weapons. What we mean by this is either like a fingerprinted, um, you know, like a, a bio identification system that's built into the weapon that only allow. I mean, part of this is because of collection of information. Part of the reason they're opposed to it is for collection of information. Part of it's like this individual liberty aspect, right? You should be able to trade your gun as you please. You should be able to use your gun as you please. Not have to do some kind of biometric. Um, identification to use your gun but i think that you know especially with the rate of technology i think you could see plausibly not only like identification of the gun owner but even maybe a measuring of vital signs and because you know there are definitely some physiological reactions that happen certainly that must happen uh being built up before someone tries to commit suicide or does uh or, you know commits commits a murder or is about to like the state of mind of someone theoretically could be measured by different vital signs, by a gun, a computer reading a person. Um, I know it. I mean, no one, Rachel, you guys probably have opinions on this yourselves, but I, I, I get these, this, this whole question about individual protect identity protection, individual Liberty. But I mean, I think this is something that we should seriously consider as an approach to reducing, um, the trading of guns, the, the the unregistered trading of guns, the, to, to enforcing gun protection or uh, gun control laws, either if they're already in yeah. place or should they be put in place. Yeah, well, I think something quick to say about the whole smart weapons things is that it's a way to kind of try and attack this suicide issue and that a lot of times just having a gun in the house um, increases the risk of suicide. So yeah. it's not even, a lot of times it's not even the owner of the gun. Um, so yeah. by not like having access to a gun, someone might choose a less lethal way of suicide. So yeah. like, for example, suicide by gun, only one in 10 people survive that versus like overdosing, which is much less lethal. It's much easier to get someone to the hospital. Um, so I think that smart weapons would be a potential way Mm-hmm. to try and combat the high rates of gun suicide. I, th- I think also something that can also be like discussed and talked about is because conservatives will make the point that suicides are like that they're a cultural thing. And they certainly like we can't separate this idea that they aren't a cultural thing. I think yeah. the best aspect or the best um, example of this would be Japan that has incredibly restrictive even like sword control, but all weapon control. Um, both because of the rights that they allocate to their police and enforcement mechanisms, but also um, just because this was never something that was proliferated amongst the, the, the populace, right? Um, gun ownership. Uh, so 
you still have a, a suicide rate, which is is actually pretty high. Yet you you don't have a, a large owner like a, at all. I mean, there's 40 muggings in Tokyo, whereas there's 17,000 ever a year. Well, there's 17,000 in New York City, right? Um, obviously, that has to relate with other things, but there is not a a prevalence of gun crime at all in mm-hmm. in Japan, and it's actually a shock when there is you know an uptick, which might be 10 gun murders a year would be insane for for uh for Japan but they still have this the suicide rate i think it's incredibly salient though that we do have to realize that guns increase the mortality rate of suicide and if there is a way that we can curb that particularly um like bringing in australia's example where australia like you did see a reduction in uh i believe it was a suicide rate or at least the mortality of the, the suicides at suicide attempts um when you introduce gun control now, this might, you know, obviously it has, again, cultural factors. People are going to commit suicides at varying rates. But when suicides predominantly are, are like, mainly focused, at least in the United States, in rural, um, rural Americans, white, older Americans, middle-aged, um, that live in isolated areas, uh, it does... It, it does bring up you know questions of like oh like are they gonna have a gun anyway they, these are like gun owner this is your classic gun owner too right like a rural <laughs> middle aged white American but at the same time you know if we can introduce smart technology either statutorily or get the gun owners or the gun manufacturers to sign on to this it's so it's I I think I would not push back against that but like yeah. I would wonder how good smart technology is right like. Mm-hmm. I know it's good, and I, I'm not an expert within smart guns. I know that they exist, and I know that like yeah. the science behind them makes sense, right? If you point it, like it, it's designed so like the non-owner of the gun can't use it, right? That's yeah. the specific design of it, right? Yeah, I think there's there's good concerns to have, like there's good reasonable privacy concerns about that type of technology. Putting technologies within guns is maybe not the smartest idea. I don't, I don't know. Um, requiring guns to have that smart technology might retroactively illegalize guns in the past, like in the past yeah, that were no, not manufactured. Yeah. That's, that's a problematic uh, part of it. Another thing might just be that like smart technology might not always work. Right. In the same way that a safety doesn't always work. Right. There's, yeah. When you do, when you think of gun safety, you always point it down range. You always point the firearm away from human, away from yeah, humans, yeah, away humans. from where it can like fire and discharge. Like, there are certain concepts around that, and so smart technology might always work. It could get hacked. Like, there are reasons, yeah. like, I think it's a good, there's, like, you can look into this policy, but, like, be be aware that, like, it might not always work. Sure. Right? I, I think, I mean, I think particularly with the prevalence, like, you know, I, I guess we can mention this now, but really, like, just the sheer amount of guns we have in the United States is a problem in the sense that this overflows, as I think Noah will talk to later, but uh, it overflows into Mexico and to, to a, con- a country where you literally can't own a gun, I believe. Um, and it, it, across the border into Canada where they actually have reasonable gun control laws. But um, I look at smart technology as, a, I mean, it's hard to estimate the impact of this, right? Because there's a lot of countries that do, I mean, there's not a lot of countries that have think, gun laws like the United States, right? Yeah, I think the the the... the broader sense of this is like if you're trying to address with smart guns if you're trying to address suicides or that type of thing like 
there's a maybe a more broad way of doing that where like these are suicides are kind of wrapped in with the deaths of despair right overdoses and other things like, yeah. it's not just firearms and like there are maybe not more broad ways to do it but like different ways to approach this that might be more effective like more like just like we're gonna have to have a, a cultural shift where like talking about emotions yeah within, I agree. like I agree for males is yeah. just but... more important being able to address depression being able to address mental issues is more important like those might be more salient not to say that smart gun technology is wrong it, it very well could be very helpful in this right but like i guess it's just like it's on the margins as a, yeah right? as a policy yeah. decision like this might be a lot it, yeah it is a lot it is yeah i, I don't de- i don't deny little, this but, but like no it's good we're talking about lives here right yeah, i think exactly. i think i think again it could be like we say we end up reducing suicides and like accidental uh gun gun uh deaths by 10%, it could be a lot, like a significant amount, depending on A, the technological capabilities. I mean, the other thing is, like, particularly for suicides, like, I could see criminals trying to hack uh, smart gun technology. I can't see, you know, like someone who's, particularly when suicides are so impulsive, hacking uh, a, a gun to, to use it to get around the smart technology, particularly when there's other methods of, of attempting suicide. So I think particularly for this issue, it's it's a possible solution, um, but I, I think we should talk about now, like the both, other, yeah, mass shootings yeah. and and handguns. Yeah, I mean, I, I think both of those ideas mm-hmm. are super important, and mass shootings, I think, garner more attention. Mm-hmm. So I think they're the things that people really focus on. So with the assault rifles and that kind of stuff, um, I think there are. Um, some policy um, things that we can do to kind of try and correct both of those issues. For example, universal background checks Mm -hmm. um, is just kind of a general way to try and decrease gun violence, you know, making sure that um, people who like sell guns over the internet have Mm -hmm. to get background checks for the people that they're selling to. Um, Stuff like that, I think, is a way to try and fight both issues at the same time. I'm just, I am concerned both in the discourse that's happening right now, but um, like the broader gun control discourse in the United States, that it's, not that it's too focused on, not even that it's too focused on uh, like particularly like semi-automatic weapons or um, handguns. And I think obviously, I think this has been widely covered, but we do, Democrats, when they are crafting the policy, need to be much more like, more aware of like what guns are and what you're banning because too too often particularly like in new york but even with the the uh the uh, assault weapons ban that was uh, a national ban that existed in the 90s like you didn't have a a good enough definition Mm -hmm. of what an assault weapon is i mean frankly you need to be banning semi-automatic like semi-automatic weapon is pretty much like the overarching problem right i mean and and obviously like I expect pushback on this because semi-automatic weapons includes pistols. It includes handguns. That means you have to, you have to actually like either like a mm-hmm. bolt action rifle or you have to physically reload, remove the shell from the gun, the discharge shell, if it doesn't remove automatically. Yeah, the, the only guns that would not be within semi-automatic would be lever actions. Yeah. Uh, revolvers that are not, uh, there are single action revolvers yeah. and like pump shock. Like this would remove a lot of guns and that would be a very... Far policy to implement. <laughs> it would be yeah, it would be a politically 
it would be a politically hard policy. I don't think it's actually impossible in states, particularly like California or something like that. Um, it would still be very hard in California. I, I, I also think that the that there's this weird. It's it, it's probably racialized, but it, it's a weird dichotomy that is drawn in people's minds between handguns and like rifles, which I mean, which it's kind of a natural di- like dichotomy that develops, particularly with this this media cycle of like, oh, they're committing it with rifles and. You know, only like one or two people die. You know, on your local news station when you see someone that commits a, a, a violent murder or an mm-hmm. attack with a pistol. But I mean, the real issue, like, if people were trying to commit mass shootings or uh, mass acts of violence with like uh, a bolt-action rifle or something that wasn't semi-automatic, like, I don't see this dichotomy developing because it literally just cannot fire as fast as like if someone went in there with a semi-automatic pistol right mm-hmm. um or even an automatic pistol god forbid but the I, I i think this is why i take the approach that we really do need mass gun buybacks we need to enforce a semi-automatic um weapons ban we need smart rifles um i guess there's kind of a cultural bias i also have which is i just cannot see the enjoyment in as fun as like a the gun may be like practicing and glorifying and exercising a weapon of death a weapon of war mm-hmm. and obviously like particularly in actual like rural america where they hunt instead of like just having guns because guns have also evolved into what like cultural ver- a cultural thing versus it's, hunting right i mean, I mean you guns talk are th- part of who you are it's part of a culture like i mm-hmm. personally my family has four guns we have a handgun we have a 22 that we used to shoot as kids and then we have two rifles these are two bolt action bolt action rifles a 25 out 6 and a winchester right these were my grandfather's and my great-grandfather's rifles like these are heirlooms that are part of my like our family history like this is part of it and that's also the same for a lot of families in america right and like that's that's the same thing there and to your point about not being able to understand like the enjoyment of shooting it's Difficult to understand unless, like, you actually do it. It's, <laughs> like, I, we, me and my family once went to go to a gun range, and me and my dad were, me and my dad and my brother were shooting the uh, 25 out 6, and the family next to us had brought in an AK-47, Jeez. Uh, Wait, are those even, I thought those were illegal. No, so those aren't, those are illegal if they're fully automatic, and you have, what, well, they're not illegal, they have to have a certain license for that. Jeez. That's a tier 2 license, and then you can get a fully automatic rifle, right? Otherwise, you can have semi-automatic versions of those. So they brought those in, and we're firing it, and, like, in that moment, looking at them, they were having fun and it looks cool. But then you think about it and you're just like, there's no need to have mm-hmm. an AK-47 or a P90. The only thing that you would have for those type of weapons is recreation, right? You can make the argument that there's for personal defense, but that, that gets into the, uh, the argument of like the Second Amendment. What is it about, right? And we can have that discussion, but the the real true discussion would be like, is it necessary to have this weapon of war right at the end of the day it's not good for you Mm -hmm. or good for society yeah i think um guns are also just super tied into um a lot of men's ideas about masculinity um there's this super interesting article uh written by angela stroud um it's called good guys with guns but she talks about how especially 
in the post-Vietnam era, there's yeah. this glorification of violent scenarios in which men protect good people mm-hmm. against bad guys. And most men are never going to be in that kind of violent scenario in which they need to actually fire the gun. But in just having a gun, it kind of... Um, it makes you feel it, safer. Yeah, it makes you feel safer and it makes you feel more masculine, especially... You know, she interviewed a lot of guys and some of them were older and having a gun made them feel more powerful because physically they were losing like the capability to fight win in like a hand to hand fight. Yeah. So, and, yeah, I mean, you can like we can I can speak that to that person's like the masculinity side aside, but like being able to feel more safe is like for a lot of people, guns make them feel more safe. And that's mm-hmm. a problem with like going back to handguns away from mass shootings, but like handguns make individuals feel more safe. Right. And so like that could be a problem for somebody like they don't like it may raise the chances of you being injured by that handgun or being in a vile altercation where like Mm -hmm. death is an op like death is a scenario right but some people don't recognize that it just it makes it feel more safe and that's something we have to recognize yeah and something that you were talking about earlier is like having a concealed Mm -hmm. carry license kind of gives you the ability to intimidate people i mean you were talking about you were registering yeah, so when I was checking in voters for the 2016 election, voter ID laws in Texas are complicated, but one of the possible IDs is a uh, as a Texas-issued concealed carry license. And <laughs> I was checking in voters, I get driver's license after driver's license, and then one time I got a concealed carry license, and it was a photo ID, and so I had to check them in, but yeah. I felt intimidated, and like I was aware that he probably had that gun, gun. with him, or mm-hmm. like it, it was a point that like, he... Obviously drove here, and so he had his driver's license, but he made a choice to give, give that the to me. Yeah. So like, yeah, that was intimidating, and that I think that's part of the things. Like you, f- it makes you feel safe, it makes you feel secure, and that you can intimidate other people, and that's kind of part of the appeal for a concealed license for people. I mean, I think bringing it back to like, like the the statistical and empirical evidence behind it, though, like it may like I'm sure it does make one feel like oh. Like, I am the master of my own destiny. I I control my fate, mm-hmm. at least on the streets, out in in the wild. But like, statistically, if you have a gun, you're more you're more yeah. likely to get hurt by it than actually save yourself from someone with it. What is also true is like you're more likely in a, an encounter to actually cause collateral damage than stop a yeah assailant. <laughs> so or like, get killed yourself. Yeah, like killed your get your killed yourself or like kill someone else who is completely innocent or a family member if it was in the house like and this happens i mean like just the other day there was a story about like this gun rights advocate who had been shot by her four-year-old and this i believe is a four-year-old this stuff accidents happen and also collateral damage would happen much more if we just had people carrying guns around and like brandishing their weapons this idea that like the midwest going back to like the midwest where like everyone had a pistol would make would reduce gun violence or make people feel safer um, is just wrong. I also wanted to touch on another point um, that conservatives like to use a lot, which is this idea that like, oh, I mean, so so they talk about the burglary, the the uh, the home invasions and like burglary rates in the United Kingdom and how they're much lower than those in the United States. And they're like, oh, this is because people own guns and they know if someone was home. This is specifically when someone is home, by the way. If someone's home, they're going to get, they might get shot, right? Um, and I, I'm sure there's truth to this. Like, 
I, I, I do question like the cost benefit analysis that goes into someone's mind, particularly when they're committing like a burglary. But that aside, I'm sure like they think somewhat like particularly if maybe you're like Texas or rural America, like someone might have a gun in here. But at the same time, there's this this other myth that like, oh, the UK has higher like, uh, I believe it was assault, but like like broader like violence uh, against people. Like this is just a higher rate in the United Kingdom, which if you look into it, and again, we'll link this in the show notes, but it turns out that like the definition that the FBI uses for the specific type of violence that um, conservatives like to bring up for the specific stat, like only includes, I think, like aggravated assault, rape and murder. Whereas, like, the UK includes, like, petty theft or, like, getting, like, pickpocketed on the street. Like, so, mm-hmm. so I think it's really important to get in the weeds of these, particularly these conservative arguments, because they, they do really fall apart on themselves when you, uh, when you examine them. An- another issue that is really, I think, a, a problem is, is when we're talking about, like, Chicago specifically, which is, you know, like, yeah. the Fox mm-hmm. News, like, go-to, it is pretty evident that the guns that come into Chicago are from Indiana, which is literally right across. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, I mean, it's so close. This is a popular talking point. Like here, like list off these city names, list off why these, these cities are very violent. They have strict laws. <laughs> mm-hmm. Therefore laws do not work. Right. I would counter that, that like you don't have to just buy your gun in Chicago to use it in Chicago. There was um this stu- another study that I read was about, the rise in violence on the Mexican border, specifically in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, after the sunset of the uh, assault weapons ban in 2004. Like, there was a... When you control for drug... Uh, the rise in drug violence and drug trade, there was just a rise in gun violence on those border counties along yeah. the Mexican border. It is illegal to traffic guns into Mexico. Like, that is a thing that is illegal, but, like, people still do it, and because there was an easier access to it, they just did it. Like, Guns do not stay in their own, like, they do not go from the gun store to the house and stay there. They can go from the gun store to the house, to the next house, to the next house, to Chicago. It's Another thing that's really interesting is, like, it's really hard to, like, we, when we were doing our research, it's it, it's very hard to get good statistics on this, not only because of, like, the lack of, like, a proper uh, communicating bureaucratic structure in the United States, but also because of, like, the fact that the CDC is literally just banned from doing any studies on Guns, gun control, gun-related violence, that kind of stuff, because the Republicans have literally just put it in a line. Like, you cannot focus on uh, on guns and gun-related crime when, like, with the CDC's measuring other public health issues. Um, they do provide stats, but they don't provide— it's just, it, it makes it more difficult to make accurate policies when you don't know what you're making policy about. Yeah, and, and like, what's the problem? Like, if, the, if there's really, like, a causal link between— right to carry laws and reductions in crime or reductions in violence, reductions in muggings. Like let's, let's see it. Let's fund the government to do some research on this topic with all the data that it should have access to or can verify because it could do more. Right. But they don't want this to happen. This is really unfortunate because I, I, I do think we need more research on specific policies on the effects of those policies. Cause I also think they'll kind of highlight one of my points, which is that really like, these marginal policies that really take place that would change the interaction between the gun store and the gun store owner and then also, like, the client who is purchasing the gun, like, this isn't enough. Like, we need, frankly, a more intrusive gun policy that would specifically target 
the trades that go on too often behind uh, closed doors, behind the black market. Um, we need specifically the trades that go on between state lines. You know, like it's worrying, not maybe for the individual gun owners, but for, particularly for criminals where there's literally a pipeline between Arizona and California, between all these other states. And it's, it, it really is, it's concerning. So we have a problem of gun violence. We have a problem of mass shootings. How do we solve that? I think there's real, real reasons to say that maybe we go back to the same style of um, assault weapons bans from 1994, 2004, and look at ways to make those better implemented, have less loopholes, have a better definition of what an assault rifle is, maybe make it semi-automatic rifles that are weapons of war. Like, you have to have a better definition of it so there's less loopholes. A ban of those does not seem inadequate. You don't need those for hunting. You don't need those for, yeah. you don't need those for recreation. That, that is for mass shootings, right? Those are for, those are weapons of war. Um, besides that, you can have uh, magazine uh, size limits. Those are, that's an important thing. You don't need more than 10 rounds or five rounds to be able to go hunting. That's not necessary. You don't need a 25, 30, 100 round clip. Those are just unnecessary, right? Um, increased background checks, just, making sure that we as a society say we're going to take the extra time just to make sure that everyone's safe. And I think those are legitimate steps to take, right? Taking away people's guns is a problematic thing and something that we should be worried about. But at the end of the day, it's like we need to have as a society a, a, a discussion and action upon that a discussion of just like, how do we help people? And I think that comprehensive assault weapon bans and approaches to magazines and at the end of the day, approaches to who can get those guns yeah. legally would be the best best I, approach to that. I I'm a little bit farther left on this issue. Um, I, I I I I guess I I hear the concern of of, of gun owners that you know we want. I actually I, those I, are legitimate perspectives to have to like yeah, not like guns and want them gone. Yeah, like, that's I, a legitimate I, perspective. I just think I think number one, you like the the the. The way I see it, we definitely, I, I agree in a complete national semi-automatic weapon ban, um, a national gun owner registry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all these, the other thing is like a lot of these things will go to the courts, which depend on the makeup of the court, but withholding like in these political questions um, or, or judicial questions. So national so, uh, semi-automatic weapons ban, um, but gun buybacks for sure. This I know this works well in California. Ammo registering when you purchase ammo. We also mm-hmm. have this in California. You have to like register. I, I can't remember. Was, I think you need an ammo ownership like registry as well. Like you need to have like a, a separate US, thing. That's in California. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is new. Um, okay. But like just keeping track. Like if someone's built up forty thousand rounds, which is this broader problem of like super gun owners in the United States that own like just tons and tons of guns, which makes this per capita gun ownership in the United States like ridiculous, like off the charts high. Um, we need to address that. I think smart guns, making sure like gun ownership is is certainly like limited. It's tied to like some kind of biometric identification so that we keep track of where these guns are. Um, all these are good policies. Because I mean, I, I'm sympathetic. Like the way I see this debate, and I don't think this is framed and this can go into the political questions, which I think are also important, but like it's too often framed as like a personal 
liberties issue where I think it should be definitely framed as like a, a public health issue. Like when we re- realized lead was bad for people in their homes, like we didn't let people just use lead paint anymore. We banned it. And then like we went in and pa- like repainted houses. Like we said, oh, we, I believe it was the EPA that at least now is administering this process, which they haven't done an adequate job at, by the way, but <laughs> different policy. Um, you know, they went in and like repainted uh, houses without like lead. And this is also a public health issue. Like people, so many people die needlessly because of gun crime. And while there are other factors that are related to that, particularly in crime rates, uh, drug criminalization, all these other things, you still have to realize that like a lot of the mortality happens because guns are guns versus like people stabbing each other with knives, which I frankly may hurt a lot and you may be, you know, you may not die as quickly, but that's the other thing. You won't die so you can get to the hospital and get treated. Um, and I think this really come. we can end with the political question, which is, uh, is the response of Democrats adequate enough? And like, what, what should they be doing? What are they doing that is good? What aren't they doing? Or what are they doing that's bad? I, I come down upon the line that Democrats have abdicated like the moral high ground on this issue in the sense that like too often or even accepting like the Republican worldview, which I think is wrong, that like the Second Amendment was ever a protection. Like you'll even hear like even like liberal Democrats or like super progressive Democrats be like, yeah, the Second Amendment exists, but we need lots of restrictions on it. Like, no, go out there and say like, oh, look, like it didn't even mean this in the first place. Like quote, I mean, and at first, I think information campaigns and re-inform, like, re-informative campaigns are daunting, but this is what the NRA did for like 40 years, and pre-activist NRA, um, pre-Reagan, like you had in the 50s, uh, a, a huge proportion, the majority of Americans supporting a handgun or a pistol ban, and now you only have 22%, where 72% would say, this is a right, or people, I would never support a handgun ban. So... Information campaigns moving the Overton window works, and Democrats are way too scared of even touching this issue, which in maybe a a rural district or like a conservative district, I could see this, but like, come on, some of these guys need to to step up. I mean, what do you think, Mm -hmm. Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. And I think that a lot of times, like, the gun control debate really only happens after mass shootings, and I think Democrats need to make this debate last for a long time like, a like public it should be, it should, health issue yes it should be it is a public health consistent issue. in their campaigns and that you know i think that the democrats a lot of times do get spooked by the nra yeah. and they shouldn't i mean it's we need honestly we just need to like really fight back really take a yeah. stand consistently talk about gun control and not just about you know assault rifles we need to talk about like handgun violence which by the way i think it's really important that we note this like right now it the the focus well the focus on semi-automatic particularly assault weapons and weapons of war is very important because no one should own these um it it also lends itself to an inherently classist and uh a racialized view of the world in the sense that where do these tend to happen at least the public perception is um that they happen in white school districts or white areas, um, areas where that white wealthier Americans live, whereas 
the gun crime happening every day is in the middle of Latino and uh, African-American um, urban districts or, or suburbs. And this is a, a serious problem in these communities. And I mean, they've been asking for action for like, a long time. If you had these people at the helm of policymaking, there might not even be any gun ownership. I mean, the people that deal with this issue every single day do not want more liberal gun issue, uh, gun ownership. People that interact with gun violence every day don't want to see this. Uh, so I mean, I, I think that's an important thing to talk about when we're talking about the politics of it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, two thirds of gun related homicide victims are young black men. We need to not just focus on you know, these mass shootings, we have to focus on the day-to-day gun crime. Yeah, not to de-emphasize that in yeah. any way, yes. but it's equal. And I, I actually, we should commend the, the students, activists, really, for re like bringing to light also this issue as well. I mean, like, these people are incredibly woke. And I think that's <laughs> the great thing about, like, millennials and then Gen, uh, is it Gen Z? Yeah. Is that, Gen Z would <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. that, like, these are woke people like they understand the intersectional nature of these debates. Um, Noah, what do you think about the politics? I think it's important to recognize that yes, gun violence is more than just uh, mass shootings. It's, it's a day-to-day occurrence and these are like real issues. Right. I think it's also important to recognize that like it is a public health crisis. Like these are, these are deaths. These are American lives that are being lost. Right. And that is a problem. I think there's, I think it's important to recognize that the Second Amendment is not a useless amendment. It's an important amendment. And that is coming from my perspective. I think that it's good for people like you two to have those opinions and be speaking about them more clearly because I don't think the Democratic Party is honest about its positions on gun control, right? I don't think that the position that, like, we should respect the gun or the Second Amendment, but we should have all these restrictions is, like, the dominant one. I think that's more of a political position, right? It's yeah. my position because I believe that, right? That we should have a respect of privacy, a respect of the Second Amendment, and those are important things, but we should make sure we have a responsible respection of that. But I don't think that's where a lot of the Democratic Party may be, and I think that's it's sad that we're not as honest about that all the time, but in my view, I think it'd be important to make sure that we're recognizing the privacy of individual citizens, the privacy of them to have guns and not to have to be able to tell the government that they own them not to be able to tell people that they have them like as individual citizens they should be able to keep their lives private right and then also that they should that we should recognize that it is a principle that we establish as part of the constitution we may not have, like put it in the way that we think of it now but like it's a principle to be able to be a gun owner in the united states right and that's like, that's a certain thing and i i think those are important to respect it's definitely important to try and address those issues and be responsible about them and like not be defeatist about this and say we should do nothing but it is important to recognize that i think we should have pushback from y'all because that shouldn't be the end of this podcast is (laughs) well yeah i I guess i guess i guess the way i think the way we can wrap this up is like noah do you see i mean and this isn't to say that like only the 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 constitution like that is the limited amount of rights that we have because i think noah would also say that like Yes, we. People I mean, are, privacy comes from like an an interpretation of the constitution. Yeah, but I, I think you would yeah. also like you would also say that we have like humans have a right to like healthcare, right? Like these are we, maybe not, but like I mean, no, I think like yeah, like, <laughs> like the right to good life is kind of inalienable, right? And so like, yeah, healthcare would be part of that. And so, do you see guns as a right or a privilege? 
I would say that guns, uh, as established in the Constitution, are. Do you see, but on a on a meta on a meta level, do you see guns like, as a human a right, right or a human privilege? Do I have a human right to own my own guns? I I would say so, <laughs> but like, I would say so personally that I have a, a right to have my own guns. They're my own property. They're my they're they're tools. Right, a hunting rifle is not a tool of a mass shooting. It's just a tool to go hunting with. It is a a tool to accomplish a means. Right, and in the same way that maybe I have a right to like not a wrench like a, a wrench is a simple example that that trivializes gun violence but like yeah. the same right i have a, to that wrench and to that tool or to own that thing is like it, it makes sense there right that's a responsible thing if if suddenly wrenches were like being used to kill thousands of people like mm. we should be have a discussion about that but like to me it seems like a right but but do you have a right to own a wrench this is the question. Um, I actually don't know <laughs> if one has a right. I haven't seen the constitutional <laughs> legalese on like the right to own a wrench specifically. Um, I would say that you know, I just see like guns as like a way more useless car, right? Like we use cars every day. Lots of people die from cars, but like it's a lot of societal utility in like people owning cars. Whereas like guns, and, yeah. And, uh. <laughs> and like, let me, I mean, my position is not that like we should do nothing, right? Or it should be we should do quite a bit. We should be actively yeah, yeah. trying to like solve these problems, right? By also respecting them and you know recognizing those those rights, right? And so that would be my position. It's a difficult position to stake out, and I understand that that's a mm-hmm. that I'll just I'll live with that, right? But like that is the position that I take, and we should be aware that a lot of people think of those as just rights and like if we're approaching yeah. them that way that the message that we have is a good one but back to you ricky well we're gonna end it there and uh we want to thank everyone for tuning into this uh first episode i think it's um we've had a great discussion today uh offered a lot of important policy points please like and subscribe to wonked a policy pod uh also if you want to go follow the harvard dems on twitter it's at harvard dems and Facebook is, uh, I believe, you can just look up Harvard College Democrats. The um, links to research, the notes, and everything will be uh, down below in the show notes. And yeah, thank you, thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time.